Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. You know, I told you earlier, like, I have some health issues and for years I didn't do anything about it and the disruption was coming in my life if I kept doing nothing about my health issues it's the same thing here like if you're going to be disrupted if someone's going to try to disrupt you or out innovate you somewhere along the lines with your business you have to address these things did you get like super depressed or did you ignore it I did I did I mean I I literally was diagnosed my esophagus doesn't work Basically, the nerves and the muscles in my esophagus do not work. They're dead. It's an incurable disease. Can you talk? I mean, obviously you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's some kind of autoimmune-based, like something attacked my... Yeah, you know, I had an unhealthy gut, and I think it attacked my esophagus, and it killed it, basically. And so for years, I did nothing about it. And I had 15 minor procedures on my esophagus. I've had three major surgeries on it. My esophagus looks like an upside-down pom-pom. It's been shredded. And even the, even with the surgeries, it didn't, the surgeries didn't work? No. Well, you know, my last surgery was at the Mayo Clinic. And when I went in there about two years ago, they said, look, you know that you're going to be in a feeding tube soon. And it was in that moment I was like, I, I don't accept that. So I went to a conference with Peter Diamandis called Abundance 360. And he talks about people taking moonshots in their business and in the world. And I thought, well, maybe my moonshot should be to cure my disease. Um, and then I wrote an article in Inc. about how I'd find a cure for this disease in five years. And I, I, I had no idea what I was talking about. I just decided to put it out there because I felt like I needed to be held accountable. And, and I, you know, it was like, how, how big is the pain for me? Figuratively, how big is my pain in my life? And for years, I just stuck my head in the sand and did nothing. And I decided I didn't want a feeding tube. You know, ultimately, everything in my life came to a point with this disease. The disease made me realize that I have to constantly grow or I'm going to be in a bad spot. It literally forced me to change everything about my life. So, so it not only forced you to change, but also in a meta way, it seems it, it, it made you realize the importance of change. And you're able to apply that to your business. Like everything is changing. Everything is disrupting, whether it's internally or out of business or in politics. And you have to take action or, or die. I've got on Philip Stutz. You might not have heard the name, but you've definitely heard of some of the people he's worked with and 
You're going to be fascinated by how he works with them. Uh, Philip, welcome to the show. Oh. I'm not done with my intro yet, but welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. So, so Philip, you basically, I'm going to, I'm going to start off the intro this way, but it'll lead in other directions. First off, you wrote a book called Fire Them Now. I'll describe in a second what that is and what that's about. But you've basically elected, you, you've gotten presidents elected, you've gotten congressmen elected, senators, uh, all sorts of political offices. You've almost been, or not almost, you've been on the forefront of defining what digital political campaigning is. And I think in today's day and age, if a candidate um, doesn't use digital campaigning and he's up against a candidate who is using digital campaigning, I think it's easy to say the one using digital campaigning, no matter what their issues, no matter what their background, no matter how, what their base was, the one using digital campaigning is going to win and the one not using it is probably going to lose. Would you say that's r- roughly correct? 100% because of the ability to target your audience, which in politics is voters. But it's kind of also a, a comparison is if a political candidate decides to run a negative ad against their opponent and that opponent beats their chest and says, I will refuse to run a negative ad against my opponent. I'm going to stay positive. You know, as a, as a ad maker, I start laughing because that guy's dead. I mean, that candidate's gone, right? And it's the same thing in the way that if candidates or businesses aren't using marketing in a very targeted, efficient manner. Right, and I I think I would say most businesses don't realize this. Um, Like you look at so many businesses, particularly particularly the older ones, and and you've, you know, uh, you know, there are businesses who have, we've seen like Blockbuster that have just gone out of business by not using digital techniques. But I've seen... Just in the past few months, I've seen hundred-year-old brands that have just almost disappeared because a brand new company will start up and use digital techniques. The hundred-year-old brand will think they have a moat around their brand, so they don't have to use digital marketing, and they'll just lose. And <clears throat> you see this every day, like in, like in the air conditioner business. I've seen oh. the main air conditioning company lose within days on if you do an Amazon search, they no longer appear because some company targeted and did everything correctly. We are in the most disruptive time in human history. I mean, there's just no doubt, right? And it's whether it's politics, which you've seen, right, in the presidential side, or you look at businesses, it's the same thing. And there are a lot of business owners or entrepreneurs that aren't understanding that and that that's a huge huge problem. For example, um, look, there's 3D printing is coming out, right? We all know it. It's 3D printing is a huge, huge uh, outlier, innovative effort. I, I live on, in, on the beach in Florida. They will be able to 3D print houses and frames of houses that will, be, that will withstand Category 5 hurricanes and not blow away. So what happens to the builders that are building traditional ways? What ha- building, you know, these building companies, construction companies, what happens when they're not the ones you know, that are disrupting their own market. What happens to the insurance agencies when you don't have to get as much hurricane insurance anymore? Like I get charged thousands of dollars a year to live next to the beach. You know, we look at automated cars, which are obviously coming any day now. And my five-year-old will never drive, but it is not about them. It is really about the second and third order consequences. Like what's going to happen to governments that can't collect speeding tickets and parking tickets anymore because the cars are the main source of revenue in many communities. What happens to lawyers that sue for traffic accidents? What happens to the car insurance companies and then the one that's the craziest is what happens to people waiting on organ donor lists when they're 35,000. Yeah, you li- mentioned that in your book as, right. a, as like a third order consequence right. of, uh, you know, so basically I think the big, the big problem with um, auto driving cars is it reminds me of the problem with 
the internet and credit cards. Everyone thought in, in the mid-90s, oh, I'm not going to put my credit card on the internet, it'll get stolen. <laughs> Even though they give their credit card in the deli on the corner to right. whoever at the cash register, they won't, but a, a few, just a few years later, everyone had given their credit card onto the internet. And People, by the way, that, that's a disrupted industry. Yeah, the credit card industry is almost is going to be gone soon because of the Venmos of the world and, and yeah. companies like this. People don't want to use a hold a credit card; they can just hold up their phone. And I mean, it's just everything having an immediate transaction that goes back and forth and not but, held. But, but the, the, the analogy I, the analogy I wanted to make was that. People didn't trust that. And people right now, I feel there's still a feeling like, oh, self-driving cars can just crash. There's no driver. So there's still a little fear that they're less safe. But the reality is it's 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 probably an order of 10,000 times safer than humans driving cars, even now in right. the industry. That's 100%. And, and you know, in five years, it'll be you know off the charts. My point is, like, we are in such a disruptive time. I wanted to focus in on marketing for businesses because there are so many businesses that are totally marketing ineffectively. And they've been steered uh, in the wrong direction by other marketing agencies. And so I just kind of wanted to, like, help people get unstuck in that. And that's sort of the premise behind the book. Yeah, and, and so, so the premise behind the book is um, you, you basically say you, the techniques you use to help candidates get elected weren't really being used by corporations from from billion revenue corporations to startups and that when your agency and you, and you run th- uh, three different companies uh go uh I always say things go big and win big win big <laughs> and then the Philip Stutz companies yeah. and uh uh when you started uh, uh having bringing on corporate clients you would drastically improve their business because you know political candidates not only do they focus on results, but they have, and the results are getting more votes or, or raising more money, but they also have a deadline, which is election day. And companies that have for 150 years spent money on branding, it's sort of, you can't really measure it. So it's hard to see what the results are. You can't, there's no deadline. Um, you know, uh, uh, you bring up an example, which, which funny enough, uh, Seth Godin brings up this example mm-hmm. in his book, Purple Cow. Uh, you bring up an example of one corporate client you had, which bought a full page ad in the Wall Street Journal. And I remember Seth Godin in Purple Cow, I believe it was Purple Cow where he said this, is he would ask people to name him all the ads they remember from that morning's Wall Street Journal right after they read it. And nobody could remember a single ad. Like, is there any value at all in like advertising in, in the newspaper or on TV? Yeah, it depends on who your target market is, right? This guy, this company, uh, they were a construction company building housing developments on the beach in Hawaii. And they ran ads in the Wall Street Journal vacation weekend edition, right? And they spent like 50 grand and they got one lead out of it. And he came to me and he's like, look, I'm kind of intrigued by what you do in politics. You think you can get a better return? Well, I was like, anybody can get a better return than that. But I was like, sure. He's like, well, look, I'm only going to give you 7,500 bucks. Tell me what you can do. So we took a, we spent money on a research to understand their demographics, understand who was buying houses out there, understanding the consumer, not saying we've got this great product, but we, we want to know what the consumer thought. And, 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 and by understand the consumer, it's not like you're guessing, you're able to statistically oh, test. Absolutely. We've got a partnership with one of the largest data collection analytics firms in the country. And so we literally can understand how people think, feel, and make decisions and what platforms they're on. Like what, this is almost on a tangent, but like everybody's talking about like the power of big data now and how everybody is basically a collection of data that every marketing company knows. 
what what sort of data do oh, they have? I have. This is a. Can I give you a great example? Yeah. A great example is we're working with a. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but it's a 20 million dollar business, and they built their company to 20 million. And they ran the last two years for their marketing and their ads. They had stalled. They spent one point six million dollars on their marketing over the last two years with no business growth. Their marketing had been all about discounts. And over the over the previous years, with the economy where it was, discounts sold. Discounts. Where do they advertise their discounts? Uh, all on all platforms. So, uh, but mostly on the digital mechanism. And <clears throat> we went in and did a full review and, and you know sort of audit of their. Uh, their consumers, not their product, their consumers. And what we found was as the economy got better, the mind shift of the consumer changed. They didn't want to be marketed to discounts. They wanted quality. They wanted to know a story. They wanted a, a story they could buy into. And so we came back to them. Then we found out that they bundled these, these consumers of theirs, right? Bundled all their services, and you know, whether it was cable TV or whatever it was, you know, they had bundled services. So they looked at discounts through bundles because that's smart and that makes them feel smarter. Mm. So how did you how did the data tell you that? Like how did you figure that out? Well, we took all the data from their company and we overlaid it and produced millions and millions of So you of, so, so since they were doing some sales online, you were able to see what type of engagement each customer had. Like if somebody engaged with one of their products, was it a solo buyer just buying one product or was it somebody who was trying to buy multiple products for the discount? Well, we or? get thousands and thousands of data points on that one person. Mm-hmm. And through that, we can understand, like, are they bundling their cable or are they bundling internet services, right? I see. So so you look at, like, prior customers who had previously successfully been marketed to, but now they're not being successfully marketed to. And what's happened to that, Not maybe not that specific customer, but that profile of customer. Right. The data collection company says, well, this guy recently or, or this family recently uh, went from one-off telephone, one-off cable to bundling it all together. And he went from uh, using this line airline and that line airline to getting uh, a frequent flyer card at American Airlines. Totally. Data said that discounts felt cheap to them. Five years ago, they liked discounts in their marketing, right? You know, 50% off this, 25% off this. That worked. But the world changed, and they didn't know that their customers' behaviors had changed. So before we ever run any kind of marketing, I want to know what the consumer thinks, their customers think, the clients think. And through that, we were able to say that these people are making a lot more money now, and they want to be, they want to be told they're smart. They want a high standard, right? They want to know their product is clean and green and all that. So that's, that's what we did. So we changed that, and all of a sudden, we've seen growth in the company now and how did in their you, marketing. How, how did you um, change the marketing for the company? What did you do? Sure. Well, what I do is, listen, I, it goes back to what we do in politics. And I'm, take away the political cans. My business, my marketing agency in politics runs on three things, reputation, relationships, and referral. I've never run an ad in my, in my marketing business ever and gotten client. And, and, and no client has ever signed up for me because they saw me on TV. Never. Okay. You probably, you've said, I've heard you say this before yeah. as well. Like TV did not, I've done 200, over 200 appearances on ESPN and MSNBC and CNN. That, and not one client has come through the door that way. I, I would say, I, just, just yeah. to add to that a little, the only thing TV has done for me, and, and I remember one time my TV appearances slowed down. I was doing like three a week. And the financial crisis was happening, so it went down for a while to zero a week. And I got scared. Like, are people going to forget 
that I used to be that guy they would see every week on CNBC. And then I realized very quickly, even six months later, people come up to me and say, oh, I just saw you on CNBC, even though I hadn't been on in six <laughs> yes, months. Right. It's like, you only have to go on a few times right. and you have the credibility. You're the guy telling sure. TV calls for expertise. True, true. I mean, there's a good part of it. There's a status element. But you probably don't need that. to do 200. You need to do like four. Right, <laughs> totally. And then you just use that forever. But yeah. my point is, is that our business was built on those three R's, right? Relationships, reputation, referral. And when I go into every company and I say, before we go in and start running, you know how many businesses come to me and say, we need Facebook ads? I, that's a tactic. I don't, I don't deal in tactics. I deal in strategy, right? And then we'll come in and, and we'll understand and try to build out a reputation and relationship, aspect for their marketing. And in the, that's in the way we message all their ads. That's in the way they're out in the community. That's in, So I'll go in and I'll put together a plan that has nothing to do with any money being spent by the company. It's just how do you, get, how do you train your employees if they're going to go into homes? How do they communicate differently? How do, we treat it like a political campaign. So, so like in this, in right? this case- and So it's not just paid marketing. We do, we do an overhaul of every of the way they message, the way they communicate, the way they build relationships, their referral programs. We'll do, we, we come in there and we treat it in a way like we do a marketing, a political campaign, which is fun. I mean, it's a lot of fun. So, 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 so like when you go in and you teach them how to message, like let's say they've been messaging, oh, mm-hmm. we're the biggest discounter right. for this. Right. You now give them a story like, oh, we're the highest quality because of, here's our testimonials and and here if these are your objections, that's okay. We could bundle and you get your discount that way. And uh, so you, are you using almost totally. like Robert Cialdini's influence techniques, but with a story and, and figure, constructing a story. And, but and, by the way, that's what the consumer wants. In politics, we go out and, and, and poll right? You've heard of polling and all that. People think it's the polling and politics is all about like who's in the lead and who's winning the race and who's losing the race. And you know, no, it's, it's to find out what the vote, really it's about what the voters care about. Like the the media has their own polling. That's fine. But what we do is we go in and we find out if a politician cares about 10 things and then we go in and poll the, 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 the district or the state or whatever the country. And we find out that, that, Seven of those things the voters don't want to talk about, but three of them they like a lot. Then we're going to focus on those three because that's where they're in alignment. And so, if you know, have you ever seen a case that was egregious where uh, the voters wanted to talk about these ten things, and the politician would basically change his views to, so he could match with the voters? <laughs> Just because you I have, but I, I refuse. I've always, that's sort of been my standard. I never, I always take the way the politician, whatever they believe in, and then we try to find alignment. That's my, that's the way I always start and with you, any political candidate. Are you able to recognize when a politician might be gaming you a little bit? Because they're good at that. True, but you spend a lot of time behind closed doors. You, you, you can spot the fake pretty quickly. Okay. So, um, but anyway, but I just try to find out what voters think, and then we tailor our campaigns around how there's that alignment with the politician. And we do the exact same thing with businesses. And when we've done that, we've had explosive growth for these businesses. So, so, so that's interesting. So it, it, it's actually going in a direction that I didn't think. I always think <laughs> it's the, uh, let's just talk in terms of politics for a second. It's the candidate um, targeting the voters most likely to be on the fence or most likely to vote for him. But you're saying, hey, let's, you believe in 10 things. Let's figure out what the the voters in your district or state or whatever want to talk about. And then those are the, uh, like you just said, I'm just repeating what you said, where where they intersect, that's what you 
talk about. So you're going from the voters to the candidate to construct Correct. his story. Right. And then- It's the same then, way we do it for And companies. then you go, the targeting might happen after that once he constructs his message. 100%. So I never thought of it that way where he'll construct his message based on, I mean, I have seen that in action, but I just didn't think of that as, as directly, which, which I should have. And then I guess you, I imagine you then, you, you must do targeting on various social media platforms across that message. Like let's just, Trump's a classic example where Obviously, he did some polling and figured out everybody wanted to talk about immigration in certain states or the middle of the country or whatever. And he must have then targeted those. He must have constructed his full, you know, policy on immigration, kind of um, took it to an extreme so he would stand out and and then targeted uh, all the tens of millions of people who are interested in this issue. They did. They did most of their targeting through Facebook because that's the, you know, for the, your listeners out there, I mean, Facebook will give you every piece of data on, as a marketer, they'll give us every piece of data. Like on what every, data do they have on me? Everything. All the things you like, yeah. uh, all the thing, you know, if you have friends, you like their stuff, if you like hobbies, if you like all that stuff. So you can, you know, and then what they can also do is we, we have voter registration roles, right? In each state, and we can overlay the voter registration rules on Facebook too. So we even we know whether you're registered a Republican, Democrat, Independent, and then we can just start narrowing down how we message to that particular. Uh, because you'll voter. be able to see who's uh, at the more the more you market, the more data you have on Correct. who's converting into either a fundraiser or a voter or a volunteer yeah. or whatever. Yeah. The other outlier is that. Everything we do is to market. The reason we're successful in politics is we market to emotion, right? We find it like this is what we're talking about. We market to the emotion. We're not going out and saying, well, you know, and this, you know, business owners love their product or service. They create, they blood, sweat, and tears to create their product or service, right? And they want to scream from the hilltops how great that is. And a lot of marketing agencies see that and then play up that and, and sell these business owners. But I'm like, that's great that you're passionate about your business. I, I appreciate that. I'm passionate about mine, but I actually really care what the voters think or the consumers think, and then let's tailor your me- your messaging that way to 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 really you want them to feel like wow uh, they really care about me or I want to buy. And then we're in, we're in this kind of economy right now, James. Like uh, I'll give you an example. Um, there, uh, I have a rare uh, esophageal disease. I was going to ask you about this, right? And but- we can get into the disease in a second. My diet is totally weird and insane, right? One of the things I can't eat peanut butter or peanuts, but I can eat pecan butter. If you've you never steak? had pecan butter, it is insanely good. But uh, there is a company called, and I'm giving them process. It's called uh, Gidry's Pecan Butter. They're like, out of Georgia. They're organic. They're all the stuff. No one pays me. I don't do any work for them. I ordered their pecan butter the other day, and in the mail they wrote me a handwritten note. So excited that you're trying our product. We, you know, we we work really hard to make this a great product. You'll find these tastes in the peanut butter or the pecan butter. And if you know anybody that wants our product, please send it. You know, pass it along. That note is why I'm talking about it right here, and they're going to get thousands and thousands of of in, you know they'll they'll receive a lot of attention for it because they cared enough to write me a handwritten note. I felt that in politics we go we get the politicians go door to door and knock on the door. And by the way, they don't knock on the doors of people that aren't registered to vote. We know that, right? It's very targeted. If you get a knock on the door from a politician, we know that you vote pretty much all the time and that you're not going to miss a vote on election day. So they go knock on those doors. We know what they what those voters like. We know what that voter at that door thinks. So the politician will be like, I'm so, you know, I want to introduce myself and you know, this is what I care about. And that voter's like, that's what I care about. 
it's an emotional response. And you knew that's what they cared about. Absolutely, 100%, yes. So you have a list of addresses you give the politician, spend the afternoon knocking on these doors. These right, and each one will have, their here's their issue. Is knocking on doors a viable strategy if a district has like, let's say half a million people in it and you're knocking on, you can only knock on like okay. so many doors. Let's do this, half a million people. Of those, let's say 250,000 are registered to vote. Of those, 125,000 will actually vote. Of those, you know, what, uh, 65,000 are never going to vote for you or 60,000 will never vote for you. So now you've got it down to about 65,000 that you need to touch and connect with and, and get to like vote for you because that's the difference between whether you win or lose. Who cares? You don't need 125,000 votes. You need 65,000. Right. And, and so you don't then, even need those because probably some of those are definitely going to vote for you. 100%. So then you can narrow that down. So what is, let's say it's 10% is that undecided. That's 6,500 doors. Do that in three weeks. I guess it reminds me of one time I was in um, a public speaking contest and there was 13 of us and there was only 120 people in the audience and the audience would vote on who was the best public speaker. And I was asking for advice from someone, you know, what are some strategies to win? And their point of view, they came, they came up with a crazy strategy, but, but it wasn't bad. It was just a weird strategy. They just said, give a dollar to everyone in the audience or just give a dollar to a few people because right. you only need, you're only, the winner is only going to win by one or two votes because it's 120 people divided among 13 candidates. And so if you just, there's law of reciprocity. If you just give a dollar to a few people, you're, that's probably the only edge you need. We say in politics, like, ultimately what we're trying to do is put enough nuggets in people's heads for them to pull the lever on election day, right? So it's just like $1 there, one ad here, one door knock here, one phone call from a volunteer here, maybe a handshake at a parade, right? If you've got enough of those over time, it's, it's a psychological effect that that person will end up well, one thing voting you talk for you about if they're undecided voter. One thing you talk about in the book that was so fascinating that Steve and I went back and forth on this, so Steve's the producer of the podcast, because we're always trying to you know, obviously get, you know, get guests for the podcast. And, you know, most people say yes. Some people say no. Some people who we really like and admire a lot say no. But Steve's philosophy is, don't worry, they'll they'll say yes. And in your book, you mention, you know, in politics, sometimes it takes seven or eight touch points, meaning what you said, like a knock on the door, a handwritten letter, uh, an ad that pops up on their Facebook page. Each one of those is a touch point. And seven or eight touch points is enough maybe to get someone from, to go from on the fence to on your side. Yep. And, and, and in business- Darts in a dartboard, right? You're trying to hit the dart. You're trying to throw as many darts in the, the bullseye. Do you, think, do you think that seven or eight is a magic number? I think, I think you said maybe in, uh, another number for business, like 17 or 18. Yeah, so uh, uh, I, I get this statistic from Tony Robbins, but he always touts it. You know, on average, it's like 16 touch points for a, and for a consumer that doesn't know about a product or service that you need to brand in their head or you know convert into their head for them to finally on average to get them to convert. And in politics, uh, there's been a lot of studies from the Brookings Institute to Yale that it's about seven or eight hmm. because we market to emotion. That is our fundamental thought process when we start. I, I have a question then. Is it, um, you know, so there's that cliche that, uh, and cliches are usually true, you know, mm -hmm. all news is good news. So you take someone like a candidate like Trump, where there was a lot of bad news about him throughout the campaign cycle, but does that count as a, a, a touch point? Yeah, it depends. For him, it probably does. For most everybody else, it does. He's just such an outlier. I mean, honestly, the guy is complete outlier. And, you know, I've said this a million times. I, I just think 
ultimately for him, he's always known any press is good press. Like that's yeah. his, you've been in New York for a long time. You know that that's how he thinks. And it, that mentality combined with the fact that voters have felt lied to by their, uh, their presidents, whether that was Bush one with, you know, no new taxes, whether that was Clinton say he was going to build a bridge to the 21st century. And, you know, then he worked against Republicans. Republicans worked against him, I know. But, and then Bush, one, uh, Bush two said, you know, I'm a uniter, not a divider. And then after about a month in office, he did nothing with Democrats again. And then, you know, Obama said he's going to part the seas and bring everybody's, no one's, you know, black or white, the red, white, and blue. And then he, about, after about a month in office, he went, this is hard. Screw that. I'm going all straight into my base. And then the voters just said, we just want the Molotov cocktail thrown and we want to blow up everything. And then he came in at the perfect time and he was the perfect vessel to blow up everything. And you're seeing this, like there's carnage everywhere on both sides. It it seems like he he did what you said just now, which is he picked, he, he, he pulled and figured out digitally what everybody cared about that aligned with him or not, I, I don't know, we don't know. And then he um, just hammered those issues over and over and over again. But then it seemed like he did a couple other techniques, which was, uh, let's say, let's say really outlandish things so it gets in the news, so it stands me out over the other 18 primary candidates, so it gets in the news, and those are almost touch points. He got like all this free advertising, like whether well, he builds a bridge well, or not, saying he was going to build, I mean, whether he builds a wall or not, saying he was going to build a wall was so uniquely different from everyone else's approach to immigration that it was in the news. And uh, uh, that's like almost a touch point for his base, even if many people hated him for it or thought it was absurdist. And the other thing that he seemed to do was his, um, his, his what you can call his visual game was very good. So calling someone, you know, tiny Marco or cricket Hillary, like labeling everybody with a visual image that was sort of, you know, uh, slightly monstrous. Low energy Jeb. That nickname brought down Jeb Bush's candidacy. Jeb Bush raised $110 million and all of it was gone after low energy Jeb came out. So, So it was like, it was almost like the polling told him what to say he he, he translated that to a visual game and an absurdist game right um and then he targeted back to his base i actually don't think he did the polling at all i know he didn't no he just went off his instincts i mean that's what's crazy about the whole thing but which all the things you're talking about is tactical in his brain he connected on a much deeper subconscious level with people that felt lied to and being outlandish made them made the voters that voted for him by the way there was like in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, like 33% of the people that voted had voted for Obama twice mm. in those states. Think about that. That never happens. A third of the voters in those three critical states that won in the presidency had voted for Obama twice. And the reason is they felt- You're saying it never happens that someone who voted for a Democrat twice in order that- Well, it happened with, with Reagan. Reagan got a lot of those Reagan Democrats, you heard. Yeah. But not to that extent, not that high. And the fact is he tapped into his subconscious. Uh, he just instinctually kind of gets that. He's been doing it for so long. But in, in the sense of saying like, you know, these people are liars and yeah, I'm a liar, but I'm gonna tell you I'm a liar. I mean, you, you know I'm a liar. Like, like they, you know what you got with him. All these other politicians, you would say, well, they're saying one thing, but maybe they do something else. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb 
has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But 
Now you don't have to waste your time if you use Hims. Hims, H I M S, Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gonna use Hims from now Not on. Not that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. So let, let's take an example that, that- I'm not defending him. I know that's going to, like, people are going to- Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. We're just talking tactics right. here. Right. Completely. So you you worked with uh, Bobby Jindal, mm-hmm. who- mm-hmm. Did I say his right name right? Jindal. Jindal. Um, he's the governor of Louisiana. He's still the governor of Louisiana. No, no. Um, he was the governor of Louisiana for two terms. Yep. And he was also a candidate for president yep. uh, in in that campaign. He uh, had been a congressman. He had also lost some elections. Um, but the odd thing about him is that he's uh, Indian American and uh, very young. Uh, he was like in his thirties when he was governor, or young thirties. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he was the governor of Louisiana, which. You know, I don't want to kind of, you know, just just throw them in a in a bucket. But as a southern state, it's kind of unusual for any of these deep south states to elect a non-white um, governor. Mm-hmm. And so, what 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 did you do? What were some of the kind of steps you did to kind of overcome uh, his hurdles? Being too young, uh, having already failed in a race, right. uh, being non-white. Uh, uh, and so on. So Louisiana had this massive brain drain going out. They were having m- many more people leaving the state when he ran for governor that were coming in. There wasn't really, I mean, if you can think about it, other than oil, there's really not an industry in the state of Louisiana. I mean, there's fishing and stuff like that. I think, I think of tourism in New Orleans, but maybe that's not so big. Sure, there, there is. But I'm saying like, you know, you don't think of the banking industry there. Yeah. You don't think of, you know. And, and so they were having this huge brain drain. And the Iraq war was going on. So we, you know, I'll, it is what it is. I mean, I know Bobby, he's a friend of mine and all that stuff, but he was a foreign, you know, a brown-skinned candidate running in the deep south. At, and he was 31 when I was running his campaign. I mean, think about that. It's crazy, right? And Why did you sign up for him? I met with him and was sold within two minutes. Like, what did he do to, to sell you? He's the smartest guy I've ever been around. I mean, he was a, a graduate high school at 16, went to Brown at, 16, was a Rhodes Scholar at 20. Uh, He ran the health and human services for the state of Louisiana at 24. Took him from the red to the black. I mean, this is a billion dollar oversight at 24. 
Uh, he ran the entire University of Louisiana school system, like 100,000 students at 28. How did he... I would think, how, how does someone get promoted to that? Like, how does someone... He's the smartest person in the room every time he walks in the room. And you... I would think a lot of older people would be, hey, it's my turn first. Sure. Like, and we're, would be jealous of him and not like him. He must have had some charisma. He does. And the other part of it is, like, he's determined. What, what would you say are, like, the basic elements of his charisma that you noticed immediately? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, well, I mean, you walk in and there's a certain amount of status because of what he's done. I mean, when I met him when he was 31, so it was pretty impressive. Then he was, after he ran the Louisiana school systems, he got appointed by President Bush to, to be an assistant secretary at the Health and Human Services, the National Department. Um, and then, you know, he just sat down. He was very clear on what he believed in. And he was very clear on what he wanted to run on and what was important to him and how he wanted to help his state. And really, it was all about the voters. It was about, I want to help the state. And I was like, this is really cool. The other thing was, I felt... Like, as a Southerner, I'm from Alabama. The opportunity to go work for a minority candidate in the Republican Party was something at that point in time was could be very historic and right, he could very have been amazing. And he I still could be sure. And and I, I think you know he was before Obama, so I thought this was going to be the first minority president ever elected. And I was mesmerized, but I really did. I cared about him. He was, uh, I care about him still, but uh, he, he's just a really good guy. But one of the, so there was this huge brain drain in Louisiana, and that was the number one issue on all the polls. Well, the thing is, Bobby it literally is the fastest talker that has ever walked this earth. Like he can, his brain just, his mouth cannot ever catch up with his brain. And when we went out and polled, we found that the voters thought he was really smart. They really didn't care about his age. For the most part, the race thing wasn't coming into play. But what they said was that bothered them was that every time they saw him on TV, they couldn't understand him because he was talking so fast. Now, Bobby does not have any kind of accent. He's a Southern accent. He was born in Louisiana. So he talks with a Southern accent, but they couldn't understand him because he was going so fast. And so we were like, how can we turn that into positive? Because you can't change the way he talks, right? And so the first ad that we put out we, you know, first TV ad, and this is basically the emergence of digital, so it really wasn't in play. But uh, it was the first ad came out, and it said the first thing he said was, "People say I talk too fast, but we got a lot of problems in Louisiana, and we need to get to to fix them right now." And that neutralized that one thing, and it mm. turned a negative into a positive. He shot up in the polls, and he went in the primary just because of the way we positioned one negative, you know, in the beginning, and we addressed it. We didn't hide. We didn't put our face head in the sand and say, let's just hope people don't you know, notice that he talks fast. Like, they knew it. Like, you can't ignore it. And so we decided to try to turn it around. And that's what and happened. And just that one twist. So when you went out and polled again, what did people say about Smart. He's the he's smart guy. That's because the guy that's going to fix. Because you neutralized he'll their fix complaint. A, he'll fix the things in the state. Even the people who are race was an issue for them said, yeah, a race is an issue, but that guy is going to fix things. So I, I'm okay with him. And so at that time, what, what year was this? 2003. 2003. So you weren't marketing digitally, obviously. You were making TV ads, newspaper ads. Were people, do people pay attention to TV ads? Well, they still do. Mm -hmm. You know why? Voters are old. I mean, people that vote are not young. And so old people still watch TV. Yeah, so tell me if this is true. Like one time in, in 2014, I'll tell you, I was, I was thinking of running for Congress and I asked a digital marketer for advice and he said to me um only f for the primary only campaign in senior citizen homes because primaries are always won um by the senior citizen vote 
Well, I mean, there's an element of truth to that. Yeah. Uh But I mean, most of the voters, I'm I'm to look at the likely voters, the people that turn out, especially in like an election like in 2018, where, you know, you're going to have less turnout because it's not a presidential year. It's older voters. So, so like if you were average, so if you were helping someone right now, what would you, you you would still do the same kind of polling. What concerns you? What, what are your interests? That sort of thing. How would you then target? And then you would construct the message to help the candidate construct the message. And then how would you go back and target the right voters? We absolutely know what platforms they consume. So, so like, we, we will figure out what platforms they consume and then we'll advertise them to them on those platforms. That could be TV. It could be mail. You know, actually what's actually effective, radio is still effective. Really? Yes. Even in corporate sphere. Terrestrial radio? Yep. It is. Uh, podcasts obviously are huge now. Like you can just see that growing and you can add that into your platforms of how you want to do stuff. I've heard that, that, that in terms of um, value per, you know, cost per ad, that podcasts are the best. So right now they are. And, but, but no one, no political candidate has, for instance, tried to advertise on my podcast. Like, I don't right. know why. And I've never heard of podcasts with political advertising. Well, on maybe it. you're not, maybe the podcasts that are getting it are the podcasts that lean too far to the left or lean too far to the mm. right. You know, I find you to be agnostic in right. political stance. So maybe that's why. Right. Um, but, um, you know, it, it just depends where their platforms are. Look, Facebook is, I mean, the number one platform for old people. <laughs> You know, it just is. Right. So, and they give you all the data. So that's a great place. Right. Google, it's obviously not Snapchat. It's obviously not Instagram. Right. Which is really, no, no, no. But Instagram's growing. Yeah. Trust me on this. I mean, Instagram and is growing. Why Facebook over Google? Well, I would tell you Google's the other one. It's Google and it's YouTube, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, but YouTube usually is anybody under fifty. That's a that is a habitual voter, um, mm-hmm. and we'll go into those platforms and then do you but do we'll anything find, we'll find out the data will tell us and then we'll go there so 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 you'll build up a, a a profile let's say in the imaginary congressional district we imagined before there might be 6,500 people that you've identified being on the fence do you target them specifically or do you target people who look like them on facebook or i mean you do there are lookalikes that you can build out uh, but you know we know that like we can take the voter file the voter file is is if you register to vote in new york the state of New York gives us that file for free. Or sometimes you have to pay for it, but it's available for anybody. Mm-hmm. And I can look up your name and find out when you've, not who you voted for, but you know what party you're affiliated with, how many times you voted. Do you vote in primaries or do you just vote in general elections? You can see if I voted in the Democrat or Republican Absolutely. Party. Oh, well, it depends. Every state's different. Some you know, have specific primaries. So you, and if you're registered to vote, you can only vote in that specific primary. So that's how we would know. But yeah, we know your voting history. We know your age. We know your sex, obviously. We know uh, if you have children in the household. The voter file will tell us all this, right? right? And then we'll take it to with our partnerships and with the consumer data companies, and we'll overlay all that. And then we'll take that same file and we'll overlay it on Facebook. So that our ads on Facebook, if you're not registered to vote, or if I'm running an ad that is for, you know, it, it, let's say we're running a primary, so there's even less voters that are going to vote in the primary, then I'm only voting the primary voters. I mean, I'm only running ads on the primary voters. That's it. Nope, nobody else. And the primary voters, can you identify who's on the fence and who's not? Or who's likely well, to be on the can, fence? Well, you can, but yes, you can. Through, through another mechanism of, of data collection. So, so like, are there, um, are there companies that, let's say, analyze the, the Twitter firehose of data to see, is this guy leaning alt-left, alt-right? Is he confused? Like, is there, can you get... Per, 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 now you have the list of voters. Can you kind of get per voter 
where they stand on certain issues from how they're tweeting and stuff? Twitter is useless. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just from a data collection standpoint, they, they run their model completely poorly. The greatest thing about Twitter is that's where people consume their news. So the, the, what we try to do is try to get into a news story that then feeds into Twitter. But advertising on Twitter does nothing. The only thing you advertise on Twitter for in politics, and I'd say most businesses as well, is that you hope the reporters that cover your industry or your campaign will see that article or that promotion or whatever you're doing, and then they'll, they'll recognize you and you'll get a certain amount of status from it. But there's very little conversion to be done on, on Twitter. So, so Facebook and Google right now, and maybe Instagram and YouTube. Facebook, Instagram, Google, YouTube are the primary. And politics are the, are the top four. I mean, I you know, have noticed just my involvement in the direct response business, Facebook and Google are the two most powerful mm-hmm. uh, in, in direct response marketing too, where you're advertising a product and you want to convert someone right there to, to, to being a customer. So, but for branding, what about for, for branding? Let's say, let's say somebody hires your company and says, look, we spend 500 million a year on branding. We don't, we don't know what it's doing. Um, you know, last time we switched branding, our sales went up 5%. So it would seem like it was good, but we don't know what to do right now. What, what do you suggest to them? For, again, I would take a step back and say, let's figure out ways that the customer or consumer or client, whatever it is, uh, well, they'll they'll feel like you're resonating with them. Like like if you are seen by the customer, client, whatever it is, as a commodity, you're replaceable. So how do you build whether it's branding or conversion in your advertising? Wh- how are you building that they feel like they f- you know feel like a part of you? So I'll give you a, a great example. And I do talk about this in book too. But like Tony Shea at Zappos built a billion dollar company that sold to Amazon. Oh, this was a great example in your book, by the way. On a his whole his whole premise of the company is not to sell shoes. It's not to sell shoes. It is to build a personal relationship with their customers. That's it. everything is built on there. I've gone out there. I've visited. I've toured. I've done all that stuff. I've studied it. They have a call center right at, at Zappos, and it has uh, the typical call centers in this country have one hundred percent, one hundred fifty percent turnover rate of employees. He has a nine percent turnover rate. Why? Because their entire, everything they do is the strategy of build a relationship with a customer. They're, they tell those, those call center operators, don't sell shoes. Don't get off the phone in two minutes or less. Don't, they didn't farm out their, uh, their call centers overseas. It's not automated. No, no, no. The first thing that operator does is try to get to know that person. What happens? They have a 75% repurchase rates on their, on, through their call centers. What if you have like a million customers though? Like how do you have such a high Well, that's one with- mechanism is the call center. Most uh-huh. people are coming through, through online habits. And what do they do? They sh- sh- you know, ship you your shoes. If you don't like them, they'll, they'll pay for everything. They take care of you. People feel like they're being taken care of at Zappos. My wife obviously orders from Zappos all the time. And I'm like, well, why don't you just go buy your shoes somewhere else? Oh, no, no, no. They care about me. How can she tell? Because everything is made easier and we are in a convenience society, a convenience economy. And, and if you go on there, like the culture that Tony has created there, right, within their employees, it's got to start from within as a company. So that's what we try to do. If you want to go brand, good. I want to know what your company does. I want to know what the culture is. Do people feel it from inside? Because if they don't feel it inside, it's going to be really hard to try to sell it outside, right? And that's the most important thing is how do you make that customer feel like they're not a commodity? And so in the branding, you know, we did a, we had a beer company 
And um, we went out and they wanted to promote their beer in a market they were going into. And so we went on Snapchat and we said, if people snapped them drinking this beer at this particular bar, they got that beer for free, right? That is branding. You can say it's, it's, it's con, you know, converting and sure there's a small amount of it's converting. But what that does is that millennial or that Gen Z or whoever it is at that bar taking a picture and snapping it, it now spreads everywhere. And that this company that has a great brand now is being seen like, oh, they're in this cool bar. Oh, they got a free, hey, thanks for the free beer, you know, like whatever it was. And then the bartender got to see it and make sure it happened. But that's, that's an amazing amount of free advertising and branding. And so you, and by the way, that person drinking the beer will go out and buy, buy a six pack in the grocery store. Man, you should, you should, um, I feel like this is a good, like, ink or entrepreneur magazine article where it's just 10, 10 things you can do for free that would be cheaper than an ad and build your brand. That's good. Uh, you know, yeah. amazingly. I did do, uh, for Inc., I did, uh, in the book, I talk about how businesses can use negative advertising like we do in politics to massively grow their business, right? Well, well yeah, I wanted to ask and, you about and that. And I put it, I read it for Inc., and Inc. took it, and then they took it down because they were so scared of being offend, of offending somebody because it, I talked it, about negative ad strategy. But, but, it's, so, but it's so funny because you have the data to, to prove it. So this was, a, this was kind of an unintuitive thing that I read in in the book. So again, the book's called Fire Them Now. And um, uh, you basically say, do negative advertising. In so so many words, you say that. You basically say, in politics, everyone starts off saying, I'm not going to be like all the other guys. I'm going to run a clean campaign. I'm not going to do any negative ads. And that ultimately, uh, essentially, 100% of the winners have done negative ads. And so you have to do negative ads at some point. But maybe maybe the word negative is too strong because, hey, if you want to stand out, you also need to point out how your opponent is no good. Like that doesn't seem like negative. It's it's a service you're providing. Like vote vote for me because I'm good, but also hey, this guy was in jail once or whatever. I'm making it up, but uh, you, it's not so bad to point out the negative attributes of a can of your opponent. So so everybody says, oh no, that's mudslinging. But you're not as long as you're not lying. And again, some people lie also, but as long as you're being kind of Honest, it seems like negative advertising is probably a, is a positive thing for the voters. Do you um have you you've seen some negative political ads in your lifetime? Yes, many. Yeah, do, do you like them? Uh, no, actually, I if, well, the the negative ads that I always remember are when they're done by the candidate I like least. I've never liked any candidate right. for any office. But the basic answer is no, right? right? Yeah, right. And why do we do them? Uh, I guess to attract attention. Yeah, because they work. Yeah, I mean, we wouldn't do it if it didn't work. It's a hundred percent chance that if we run a negative ad on a political campaign and our opponent doesn't respond, as I said earlier, that we win, right? I mean, like the infamous one. I mean, you you can do it poorly, and you know, but I, I would say the most famous negative ads uh, were the Roger Roger Isles, Willie Horton, mm-hmm. uh, Bush mm-hmm. Bush ads. I forgot nineteen eighty eight. Yeah, get to caucus. Uh, who was Roger Isles' boss? Who's who's Lee Atwater? Yeah, yeah. So, or it was Lee Atwater that was running the campaign that put that ad together. Yeah. So, so I w- I was like horrified at the ad because it had like these scary kind of music and there was like this revolving. Oh, door. I was thinking about the tank ad. Do you remember the tank ad? Sorry. I'm, oh, no, oh, yeah. Then there's a tank ad too, which yeah. was which was classic with Dukakis in a tank, right. where you know, looking like a small little guy, not right. like a forceful leader. Yeah. And then I also saw some ads. I think they were running in South Carolina that were like, you know, it wasn't for a candidate, but they were pushing an agenda and um, uh, they were extremely negative and like scary. 
And uh, but yeah, those are the only they're, they're probably the only campaign ads I ever remember are the negative ads. I, I will tell you this for a business owner out there, entrepreneur, if you're if you're not number one in your marketplace, if, if you're sort of the underdog marketplace, it is. And I'm not trying to hype uh, the book. If you re- this is the most important thing you can do for your business to give you explosive growth in the least amount of time. And I don't understand, but people are so we are a very heightened political environment right now, so people are scared to do anything, right? But it's an outlier. And the fact is, is I don't, I, I don't, I never. What do you rec- mean it's an outlier? The outlier, it's an outlier uh, tr- strategy for businesses to to take a compare, do, do comparative advertising. So let me back it up. I'm not talking about that businesses should run a political negative ad and hit somebody over the club, somebody over the head, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about taking the principle of it and then using it in your business to run advertisements against in a comparative way against your um, your competition. So classic is. The pep, and you mentioned this in your book, the Pepsi Challenge mm-hmm. was. Uh, uh, I don't know if you mentioned this in your book, actually. Uh, uh, I also just read uh, Mike Ovitz's recent book where he mentions it because he worked with both Pepsi and Coke. So, Pepsi what, did the Pepsi Challenge. They were number two and they came within like two percentage points of beating Coke until Coke like took action. Well, what happened? Well, actually, if you take it, they, they, Pepsi ended up dominating the young market, which was what everybody was going after. Uh-huh. And then Coke, after all these campaign, all these ads run against Coke about how pe- regular consumers were choosing Pepsi over Coke, the, you know what they responded with? New Coke. And New Coke almost brought down a hundred year old, you know, company that was one of the biggest companies in the world. Why do you think? Because usually that's like a classic business one on one strategy is when your competitor is getting close open up a new offering, and for some reason or other, I don't understand the math, but that keeps your customers. Well, uh, let me, let me I'll, I'll back it up again. Uh, in politics, if we run a negative ad on a candidate, we can expect to get a response from our opponent within four to eight, or maybe four to 12 days, right? In, in whatever advertising platforms you're using. If you do this in business, and it's done appropriately, and it's funny, and it doesn't offend any customer, and it's done all the right ways, you usually get a response between six and 12 months. And if you have six or 12 months to dominate the market and literally psychologically knock your opponent down every single day, you dominate the market. So the one example I think is the greatest was Steve Jobs. He created the, you know, the Mac versus PC ads. Remember these from like 12 years ago? Yeah. And it was the nerdy, uh, old guy with the big square glasses that was the PC guy and the Mac guy played was, by John John Hodgman and and the yeah the PC or the Mac guy was uh, the cool yeah I can't think of what his name is. Justin yeah Justin Long yeah Justin Long and he's like cool and he's wearing he's kind of wearing like what I'm wearing a t-shirt you know and and he's all you know cool and then the 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 Mac guy never ever does anything negative towards the PC guy the PC guy falls all over himself. He's an idiot. He's a bumbling idiot. You know, like he paints the picture himself. No one was offended by those ads. But Jobs created over 360 of those ads. Over 360. He only ran like 68 total. He was so honed in on trying to punch up because at that time, the iPhone was just about to come out and they were trying to, you know, like they had like 2% of the, the laptop market at the time, right? So they were trying to get more into that. And he had this sense too that the just graduate, like in college, everyone uses Mac. So he had this sense that the just graduating college right. audience, we who are they're going into corporate America, we need to get them, keep them fixated on the Mac. Totally. So he that that ad concept came out about the exact same time the iPhone came out, and it, it, that those two things coming together blew up that company in a way that it had not been 
scene. Well, you, you and could by think the way, that it was similar today. to the 1984 ad, which he only ran once. Right. But, you know, and, and he never specifically specifies a company that he's attacking. He's, he's sort of attacking a culture of, he, there's, and it's a cognitive bias, uh, like this choice ambiguity bias. There's, there's Apple and there's everyone else. And everyone else is authoritarian 1984 or everyone else is nerdy John Hodgman. Right. And we're kind of the young, hip, revolutionary, you know, creatives and, and so on. And it's happening today. Look, uh, Wendy's is doing this to uh, the fast food industry. They're, they're, what are they doing? They are well. They're, I was first, about to say, what is she doing? But I realized. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, they are. Their Twitter feed is the most fun thing ever. They, they had seven hundred fifty thousand Twitter followers like two years ago, and now they're close to three million. They are just savaging McDonald's on a daily basis. They're going like somebody uh, tweeted at them the other day. Uh, are you worried about IHOP? You know, International House of Burgers, right? Because it's not IHOP anymore, right? Oh, is and, that what it's called now? IHOP. Oh, they changed oh, the they name. Changed, they to, changed it back, right? Oh, did they? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Steve. But they uh, did. I have changed back to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They just did that for like a like a couple of days, and everyone criticized. Right, right, right. So, so Wendy's you know response back was like, "Look, if you can't get pancakes right, we're not really worried about your burgers." Like you know, like <laughs> they're just constantly tweaking everybody right now. The it's like it's like the um, the people who made Ambien uh, <laughs> when Roseanne said um, oh, yes. she had just taken an Ambien. A Ambien tweeted, "We know there's a lot of side effects." To Ambien, but racism, <laughs> racism isn't one of them. <laughs> yeah. Right. But so th- responding but is important. But here's the thing Wendy's is going after all these people. No one's offended. Everybody's laughing and it's building their brand huge. A huge, you know, they built their brand huge on this, on this one concept. John Legere at T Mobile is savaging AT&T and Verizon on a daily basis. What, what's he in saying? Ads. He, he, listen, just go to his Twitter feed, but he's running. Uh, campaign ads. I mean, he's running ads all over the place about customer service being horrible at Verizon and AT&T and they'll take care of you at, at T-Mobile. I, he's just he's run, he's more in the job, Steve Jobs lane than Wendy's is. Wendy's is in more of the tactical lane. And so... I just have a question though. You mentioned like there are other people other than Wendy's and T-Mobile that are snarky and do the, why are they more effective than the other ones? Do you, do you know mean? what I mean? They're not the only ones who are trying a social media strategy, but you cited a few that are particularly successful. Well, my thing is, if you're number one in the marketplace and you punch down in, in trying sure. to do comparative advertising, you're, that, that's, that would tell people not to do that. Because that makes so like you, Verizon shouldn't do it. Right. Well, they should respond, but they haven't responded. And AT&T hasn't responded. This but, is what I'm talking about. He's been doing this for a year now. But, but let me ask you this. Because, and look at, they're about, they're about to merge. Uh, T-Mobile's about to have the merger. And like, they're about to be a big player in the market. And this is all a big strategy. But, but, but you know, responding is very tricky because, um, so we've had John Ronson on and he wrote the book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. And kind of the conclusion, and the conclusion I've seen mostly is that when someone attacks you, uh, because the cycle, the social media cycle is so fast, right. you should just ignore it. Unless it people t- are running millions of dollars of ads against you. Because mm, they're not going to stop. So if it's just kind of like this viral thing, it goes away in 24 hours, you don't have to respond. But if it's like, when when do you respond? So, you, so A, if someone's running a million, if, if someone's specifically spending money and they have an infinite pocket and they're targeting you, you should respond. That's, yeah. that's A. Well, is there a B? No, and this is the same thing with politics. If you get hit, you got to punch back. But like, let's say you're you're a candidate, and someone tweets, "Oh, he robbed a bank five years ago," and it's like viral for a day. But it's not like being used in any ads. It's so ridiculous. It will be. 
It will be. Yeah, 100%. In politics, 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'll use it. So you have to respond. Yeah, you got to respond. In, or in, if it appears in a newspaper article, does it? do you always respond? or? No, no I think, I'd say, I see what you're saying. I mean, I like, if someone puts out a random tweet or, you know, I always say, and I talk about this in the book, like if you get a negative Yelp review, if you're a small business and you own a restaurant or something and somebody writes, you better respond on Yelp or you're, you're going to be in big trouble, mm-hmm. right? And I interviewed Donna Brazil for the book because she's a friend of mine and, in this day and age, a, when a you're Democrat, not a Democrat, by the way, shows you're bipartisan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and by the way, in this day and age, you know, Republicans, and Democrats can't be friends. But I'm old enough to still have Democratic friends. <laughs> but uh, but you know, they went through this with the Democratic, uh, the Democrat National Committee being hacked by the Russians, right? And they had a you know massive response in place, and they weren't concerned about voters. They were concerned about their donors all their donors being, all their information being stolen by the Russians. And so they had to put a rapid response team out. They had to respond to everything and they, you know, they had to handle as best they could. And of course they, they didn't, nothing's perfect. If you get hit, you're going to make mistakes. But let me, let me, let me play the devil's advocate. Let's say I'm the Democratic National Committee. I've been hacked by the Russians. They've got my donor list. Maybe I should do nothing because I don't want to seem like, oh, like we're going to put a, a president in place that lets her entire infrastructure get hacked by a foreign country. Maybe I should just be quiet about this and not let anyone know. The problem was is that Trump and all the money behind the Republicans that was that became the issue in the campaign. If you remember it, like that was that they were just hammering. How could the Democrat? You know, it was right around the NBC tape. So they this was this came out right around there, and it was just like how could they do this? And they used as a campaign issue against the Democrats, and so they had to respond. And my thing is, if listen, and I know this because, you know, I told you earlier, like I have some health issues and for years I didn't do anything about it. And the disruption was coming in my life if I kept doing nothing about my health issues. It's the same thing here. Like if you're going to be disrupted, if someone's going to try to disrupt you or out innovate you or run a comparative ad or you get hit with a negative response somewhere along the lines with your business, you have to address these things. So let me, let me ask you, let me ask you for advice here. So Around October, November, December, January, I had a very and and still to this day, but but Bitcoin was moving mm-hmm. up. I had a very strong opinion and still do about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, and it was a valid valid opinion. I thought ninety eight percent of cryptocurrencies were scams and were going to go away. That prediction's come true, and I think in the long term, and I still do that Bitcoin and and other select cryptocurrencies are going to replace paper money. So. Bottom line is I was selling a newsletter describing my philosophy. And I was also giving a lot of things away for free. So I created these ads and the ads, I wasn't just saying, hey, I'm the nice guy, please buy my product. I have to use the same tactics as everyone else because mm-hmm. everybody's doing the exact scientifically mm-hmm. tested techniques to get attention. I By think- the way, I saw your ads. Yeah. 100% I saw them. Right, well, we had the, because people- because I had credibility, I'm a, a former hedge fund manager. Right. I'm a software guy. I, I, I'm Silicon Valley guy. I've started coming. I I have the credibility, and I really did think all these other newsletters were scams. I thought I saw my readers from other products getting involved in all these scam cryptocurrencies. But again, I had to put out the ads that tested to work because I wanted people to see my message. Otherwise, they wouldn't see my message. But then there was a backlash, almost personally against me, like. People would not see my final product. They would just write articles about me and these ads, so vicious and lying, and I didn't know what to do. Do and people were tweeting all day long. Non, no one, no one read my product. 
No one actually read what my opinions were. They were just commenting on the ads and then hating me for some reason. Sure. So I don't know why that phenomenon happens, that they would uh, trigger hate. I mean, we also triggered a lot of sales, which is why you saw the ads is because the ads were working. So there was a lot, there was a hundred to one ratio of love to hate, but the hate was big. And then there started being these articles in January about me that were just disgusting lies and, and vicious and insulting. And where were they? Every every publication, like every technical publication, like from from Wired to Yahoo right. to BuzzFeed, okay. and um, uh, and I don't blame those organizations. I blame the writers because sometimes the writers would call me and say stuff, and I would say, "You can't be serious. Can we please repeat the exact thing that's true?" And then they would end up writing the thing that was false, and so I bl- I blame the writers completely. But <clears throat> I never responded to any of it because I figured I'm not going to get, you know, my, I have this saying if, if, or a lot of people have it, but I always repeat to myself, if you get in the mud with a pig, the, you get dirty and the pig gets happy. So I didn't want to respond. But we're living in a, in a day and age where you have to respond. Like you just have to, because there's, there's a, there's a, a trail now, like a e-trail, right? Of all this stuff, and right. ha- my my advice would have been like the second the, the social media started hitting, I would have responded proactively in those publications before they even wrote those articles. Like, here, why are people giving you know hating on this? Here is my philosophy, and then those articles, maybe maybe one of them gets written instead of ten. Right, like, you're not you're not. I, I, th- I see. So the fact that I didn't put up resistance, kind of. And and those articles were getting page views, sort of gave free reign to everyone who wanted page views for their publication. And, and they knew I was just going to not say anything. Well, I don't know if they didn't, knew you weren't going to say anything. It's just people are just wired this way. Like, yeah. every, I mean, I don't care. It's politics. It's business. It's everything. People are just wired to go nuts over everything. And so I think you have to have a reasoned response. And you need to be very proactive very quickly on that kind of stuff. But, but like, um, like Justine Sacco, you remember that uh, example where she was um, – she was flying to Africa. She was the head of oh, PR sure. for yeah. Yeah. IACI. Yeah. She right. made right. Um, a, just a stupid joke, uh, but it was uh, racist uh, uh, or perceived as racist. Uh, if, I don't know if there's a difference. Um, and by the time she landed in Africa, her tweet had come become viral. Millions of people had seen it. There were articles everywhere. John Ronson wrote a book about it. She got fired from her job. And in, in John Ronson's book, she says the best thing I could have done was just completely ignore it instead of respond to it. I don't know. Maybe her response sucked. Mm-hmm. Uh, that but, could be. Yeah. I mean, I, you're, you're, yeah, you, you can have still a negative consequence if your response sucks. Um, I, I, I tend to, to disagree with that philosophy. That's so interesting. So like, like if you were her specifically, what would you have done? Well, I would have held a press conference in that airport. I mean, of course, you you don't. I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, so please, right? No, yeah, yeah. now that I've had years to you know see this story, but probably would have uh, found a friendly reporter and done one story initially, where I would have some. You know, there could have been some sympathetic view to my w- whatever decision she did or whatever. Yeah, and then I would have come back and I would have run a full. I would have let that story go until the cycle ended, and then I would have put a real plan together to, to hit everything you could hit, apologize everywhere you could apologize. So I'll give you, um, you know, I, Mark Cuban is going through some, you know, the Me Too stuff within his own, within the Dallas Maverick. He didn't do it, but I think there's some of his employees had maybe sexually harassed. They just wrote like a $10 million check to women's organizations, things like that. But, 
you know, he came out initially when it came out in the late winter and was just immediately on top of it and out there doing interviews and saying, you know, this isn't going to stand. This is like, I don't believe this. And if this happened, I'll take care of it. And he could have not responded, but then Me Too would have crushed him, but he responded and he did it in an empathetic way that people found, okay, I believe him. And the issue, I mean, have you heard that? The Dallas Mavericks had a Me Too problem. Have you read about that? I didn't that? even know about it. Yeah. Well, that's because he responded immediately and took ownership and took responsibility. I'll, I'll, I'll give you another example that I thought was interesting. So James Franco had a uh-huh. Me Too issue mm-hmm. and his response was, is that, um, you know, I question everything this person's saying about me and all the things that are being said, but... This is an important movement. Everybody has a right to speak and we need to hear these people out. So I'm not going to say anything and I'm going to let this person speak because she has every right to speak. And, you know, and then we'll see later. And and then it kind of just drifted. I, I don't know if it's actually affected his career or not. Like, Steve, would you know? I think it's, I think it's affected it a little bit, but he still has the show The Deuce and... I don't feel like he's been getting hit as hard as other people. Right, he hasn't been azized for instance. Right, right. So, yeah. um. So it's it's interesting. So what um, what's next? Do you like the corporate stuff or the political stuff uh, better? I, I kind of am having fun in both, but I do more corporate now than I do political. Does that make more money? Yes, and it look the great thing is politics in the business side is recession proof, right? So pol- uh, yeah, every two years is a big election. Corporate marketing is not recession proof, right? Businesses pull back on what they want to spend and all that stuff. So and we know that at some point the you know, we'll slow down at some point because you just can't, this has been too long to sustain. The economy's been busting it. Um, but I'm having a blast since I wrote the book, just, you know, writing about it and working with businesses and applying these things and then seeing the success. And because every, you know, I interviewed over a hundred CEOs of the book and every one of them was frustrated that they didn't understand the digital marketplace. And that's amazing too, after all these years. Of well, because this, it the, changes. I mean, Facebook comes, we, we're, we're, you know, located in DC, the business. We're also in Florida and Texas and a couple other places. But in, when we go sit down with them in DC, they all say, oh, hold on, totally, you know, every six weeks, they say, oh, listen, we're going to change the way we're targeting. We're going to change the way you can apply your app. You know what? They change the rules every six weeks. So unless we're, constantly in their face. We just, you know, that's how we know. But how are business owners supposed to know how the rules change every six weeks? They don't. Yeah. And unless they have a marketing agency, they can trust and understand. And so for me, you know, and so like a lot of businesses, like the one I talked about earlier, the $20 million business, they just stopped understanding what their consumers thought. And, and by the way, to finish that story, and I'll, I'll quote your book, they, they got one lead which didn't convert from their Wall Street Journal ad when they hired you for like, only 20% of the price of the ad or whatever, you got them uh, 700 leads and yeah. I assume many had converted. Yes. So, and all they needed was one conversion to the whole thing to work. Yeah. So they need, they we ended up getting like over 750 leads from them. Yeah. And so that's been fun. Like it's almost like, uh, you know, we're and you know, it's been, it's been interesting because a lot of businesses are sort of skeptical, but now we've done enough work with enough companies that this thing is is rolling and it's doing really well. And people are frustrated because they'll, here, here's how, you know, James, as you know, 20 years ago, you could run a TV ad. Let's say you're a car company and you run a TV ad, you know, those wacky TV ads and everything worked. And it was like, it's simple, TV ad conversion. Now they put the same money on TV and it's like, ooh, not the same conversion. So now it's, you know, oh, we got to put a, 
we got to run you know uh, more digital and then it's all these platforms and you know digital mechanism mech, uh, digital you know platforms and they don't know you know and then they spend all this money and they still aren't getting the same ROI they did 20 years ago i guess because for like a car company it's hard for them for any company that is spending money on brands and car companies have to do that so beverage companies have to do that and and many types of companies have to do branding campaigns it's always hard to measure conversion it's always hard to measure what's the effect of this campaign. Well, but there's enough data now that on the on the digital side that we can at least put you know sort of a, a baseline in place from what ads do and the conversion rates, and we can try to increase that. And then you know, so so you can see like after they do a set of ads in this market on this station, were there conversions? It, it run an ad on Facebook, then we know. And uh, then you can see was there more people this week than last week, right? And you can kind of plan the traditional branding campaigns with, you know, alongside the right. the conversion style campaigns right. and see see if there's a difference. Totally. So it's it's so interesting. I mean, I feel like I could talk to you about this, this stuff for for hours, and and pro- I'm sure we will in the, in the future because of a, a lot of questions to ask you. But I want to ask you about your esophagus. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. Well. What so you have a, a, a disease that's like one in ten million or what's the what's the story you mentioned so I, in the introduction? Yeah, of the book. I, well, I have a rare esophageal disease called achalasia. Basically, the nerves and the muscles in my esophagus do not work; they're dead. It's an incurable disease. Can you talk? I mean, obviously you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, I just it, well, I'll, I'll walk into it in a second, but it's um, it affects one out of a hundred thousand. But ninety five percent of those people are between sixty five and eighty five, right? So the fact that I was diagnosed in my late thirties, um, maybe maybe up in the ten million range, I don't know. Did you get like super depressed, or did you ignore? Yeah, it? I did. I did. I mean, I I literally was diagnosed. My esophagus doesn't work, so anything I eat gets lodged, and um, we. You know, I think it's some kind of autoimmune based, you know, like something attacked my. Yeah, you know, I had an unhealthy gut, and I think it attacked my esophagus and it killed it basically. And so for years, I did nothing about it. And I had 15 minor procedures on my esophagus. I've had three major surgeries on it. My esophagus looks like an upside-down pom-pom. It's been shredded. And even, those, even with the surgeries, it didn't, the surgeries didn't work? No, well, all they did, and the surgeries were just to cut my esophagus, shred it, so that food would get down in my stomach. But the problem is I was eating all these unbelievably unhealthy foods that I thought were healthy, um, that like didn't work for me. Well, I've kind of gone into this. The I don't know. Is a, a doctor called Doctor Stephen Gundry, the Plant Paradox, a New York Times bestseller book. But he kind of lays out uh, how a lot of gut issues come about, and um, he, the guy saved my life. Like he, he's my doctor now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I stalked him until he became my doctor. So are you all plant? Uh, no, I'll eat a little meat. But the the bottom line is, it's basically lectin free. A diet, and it's a complicated thing to go into. But for years, I did nothing. I ate all the same foods I ate. I had all these surgeries. The sur- some of the surgeries didn't work. The surgeries that do work, all it does is just relieve pain. That's all. It's not fixing anything. And um, I was at the Mayo. I'm being. Tr- I was on. You know, my last surgery was at the Mayo Clinic. And when I went in there about two years ago, they said, "Look, you know that you're going to be in a feeding tube soon because the last surgery, they literally." Uh, pulled my esophagus into my stomach. They cut 25% of my stomach out. They wrapped it around my esophagus and they stapled it all together and it's going to come undone one day. And so they basically said, you're going to have a feeding tube one day. And it was in that moment that I was like, I, I don't accept that. And then they, he literally said, well, you know, it is what it is. And I was taking all this medication that has like long-term dementia effects and, but it worked in the short term for, you know, pain. And 
Um, and I just said, I don't want to do that. So I got on this diet and in six months, I got off all my medications. I don't take my medications anymore. I don't need to. Wow. And then I wrote an article in Inc. about, um, I went to a conference with Peter Diamandis uh, called Abundance 360. And he talks about people taking moonshots in their business and in the world. And I thought, well, maybe my moonshot should be to cure my disease. Um, and then I wrote an article in Inc. about how I'd find a cure for this disease in five years. And I, I, I had no idea what I was talking about. I just decided to put it out there because I felt like I needed to be held accountable. And, and I, you know, it was like, how, how big is the pain for me? Like, is the pain to make change, right? Not big in my, the pain, literally, figuratively. How big is my pain in my life? And for years, I just stuck my head in the sand. I did nothing. And I decided I didn't want a feeding tube. Why do you think you did nothing? Is that um, uh, because you thought, if you didn't think about it, it would get better? Was it sort of magical thinking? I felt like I didn't want to deal with it. And the second part was that I, um, I was being treated at the Mayo Clinic. So I figured if they told me to take medicine, I should take medicine. If mm. they told me I was going to have feeding too, maybe I was going to have feeding too. You know, until it was just enough. Well, the, 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 it's a long story, but the, the, yesterday I got an email from Johns Hopkins. I've been working with them for, since the article came out. And we will start, we just got FDA approval. We got the internal review board uh, at Hopkins approval and we will start a clinical trial, a one man first ever clinical trial sometime in the next few months where they'll insert stem cells into my esophagus to try to regenerate the nerves and the muscles. And given that you've had these surgeries that have uh, cut out part of your stomach and have stretched the esophagus down, could it fix it even past the point, you know, even though you've had this manipulation inside? Yeah, it's probably worked against me that I've had all the surgeries. Had I had, I had an esophagus that didn't have any surgeries on it, I'd probably have a better chance, a higher rate of success um, or a higher chance. And the, so, so what do they do? They Stem cells, I guess, you can inject them anywhere and they sort of fit the patterns of those cells and they regrow. <laughs> I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know. I mean, what they're going to do is they're going to take a, a culture a calf muscle take the stem cells out of my calf muscle, grow them, and then start doing small um, you know, insertions into my esophagus to see if that regenerates the muscles and the nerves. And my, you know, ultimately, everything in my life came to a point with this disease. Um, I, one of the things that I, I, care, I, I really like about you, James, is it's like um, you're vulnerable. And the fact is, is that um, I, had, uh, I was probably a really crappy husband five years ago, uh, I had a little girl, and the first year of her life, I was a really crappy dad. And my business was doing well, but I was kind of just in that you know state of a business where it was just doing what it was doing, and I wasn't innovating. And my health was going downhill, and it, it was a depressive time. Um, the disease changed my life for the better. The disease made me realize that I have to constantly grow or I'm going to be in a bad spot. And so... Not only is my health, we'll see what happens with the clinical trial, but uh, my wife and I are amazing. Um, I love being a dad. And all of these things happened because of the disease. And so if you get, took me back to 2012 and said, you don't have to have this disease anymore, I would take the disease every single time, 100% wow. of the time, because it, it literally forced me to change everything about my life. And so, I was... So, so it not only forced you to change, but also... In a meta way, it seems it 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 made you realize the importance of change, mm-hmm. so that that and and you're able to apply that to your business. Like everything is changing, everything is disrupting, whether it's internally or at a business sure. or in politics, and you have to 
take action or or die. Right. And I took I modeled poor behavior from my past and I just I treated my staff at my company poorly uh, and then they called me out. <laughs> you know, my own, I'm, I'm the owner of the company and they called me out. Yeah. I mean, this is I was bad. Yeah. And I had the chance to, you know, I always say at the, at the ripe old age of 40, I had the opportunity to change everything in my life. And I don't think that would have happened had I not been diagnosed with the disease. And so I have a very rich and fulfilled life. And if the worst thing that happens to me is that eventually all these things don't work on the health side and I have a feeding tube, okay, that's fine. I mean, I, I'm okay. I have the love of my family. And you know this, right? Marriage is hard. If you're not innovating in your marriage, it's, it's going to be tough. And I have yeah. to, and I have to think about that. I have to carve out time every week to think, think, and plan my marriage, so that my wife isn't always like, you know, like if I, I have to think about how I light her up, or you know, I want to, I think so about like this these week. What will you do to kind of, you know, change or, or improve the marriage? Or sure. take action on the marriage. I am taking my little girl to an Alabama football game, her first one ever. My wife's going to come. I bought tickets. We're going to go on the field before the game and we're going to get pictures with the cheerleaders and we've got good seats and we're going to watch the game. We're just going to be a great family together. And, you know, I, I don't know if I thought like that in the past. Like, and what did you do last week? What did I or do? Or two weeks ago, whatever. Yeah, we're been... planning dates and planning fun things. I think my wife and I, you know, did a date where we walked uh, from our house on the beach to our favorite restaurant and then we, you know, set up and watched the ocean. I mean, just stupid things. Like, it, it could be small things. Important. It could be big things. Like, we're going to go... Um, down to Palm Beach in about two weeks and we're planning that trip together. And, you know, I'm just constantly trying to think ahead. It's not about like sending flowers, you know. I mean, like, that's nice, but it's, you know, like it's what kind of flowers. By the way, it's the same thing I think of like with customers and businesses, right? So like, you know, my wife likes a certain kind of flower. It's, you know, and so I have to think about how do they get, you know, and like I, I try to be thoughtful in what I'm doing I, I think with everything in my life. And I think this is important that it doesn't need to, it doesn't need to escalate like each right. thing you do with your wife or a customer doesn't need to be better than the last time. It just needs to be different and thoughtful. And you know the other thing, uh, and I admire this about people that do this. Um, I, I'm a hypocrite. Um, I go talk on Fox News and ESPN and CNN and all that stuff, and I don't watch the news. I don't watch the news. Oh, good for you. I I hate the news. And and so I give my presence to my family when I'm in, when I'm home. You know, I put my phone down. Uh, I'm, I go ride bikes with my little girl. We'll have dinner. We'll talk. We'll look at each other in the eye. And I know that sounds corny, but I'm telling you, if you want to have success in relationships, that is so damn important. And I didn't do that. I was a, I mean, I'm ADD like crazy, right? So if 30 things weren't going on at once, it was hard for me. And I've had to learn to like take a deep breath. I do, you know, TM now and I'm trained in TM and all that stuff. But all that stuff's helped me be more present to the people in my life that I'm that I care about and that are important to me. Well, Philip Stutz, author of Fire Them Now, which um, you know, the seven lies digital markers sell, but uh, and the truth about political strategies that help businesses win. Uh such a great book because I think the idea that it's so, uh, you know, you have to be so results oriented in politics and businesses often lose track of that or don't know how to do that. Um, one thing I'd like you to do is take a look at my business 
And I'm thinking now there's probably 10 things you could see in my own business that would probably help it digitally. Yeah, and I'll offer it even to your uh, your listeners. They, If you're a business owner and you're sort of like, I don't know, like, am I doing all the right things? Could I do things better? And I'll do this with you, but we'll audit your business. It's uh, philipstutz.com backslash audit. And Stutz is S-T-U-T-T-S and Philip is P-H-I-L-L-I-P. The books fire them now. And and basically my entire my guys, my company, we'll go in, we'll take a look at everything in your digital footprint on your marketing. And then we will produce a written report that tells you what you're doing right and what you can improve. And usually we see about if people implement the things we recommend, they see about a twenty-five to fifty percent improvement in their in their marketing. Um, and we'll do it all for free. And then we'll do a free consultation call to walk through it with you. And um, we'll do it for you. We'll do it for anybody that's listening. What 100,000 people respond to here? You're not going to be able to do all those for free. Well, we've done a lot, we've done a lot over the last few months. But uh, you know how fun that is, though, to learn about all these businesses? It's been incredible. I've done every one, by the way. I've done every consultation call. You know, and they, there's something to it, the, um, the power of free. Because then there's no obligation, sure. really. I mean, there is an obligation. If you say, if you say you're going to do something, you need to still do it well. But it's not like... I always view pay as someone's paying you to do something mildly uncomfortable. So if you're doing something free, you get to, no one can give you orders on what to do. You're doing what you firmly believe in because you think it's a, it, it, it's a vision you're trying to execute on how to help people. And no one can tell you, no, no, do it this way. I'm doing it for free already. You can't tell me what to do. My my mission is I've just described in my health was that I was stuck and I really believe my mission with business is to help businesses that feel like they or business owners that feel like they're stuck or they could do better. I love that and that's why we created the audit was to give people the chance to like take things to another level because I didn't have that and I had to have a devastating event happened to me for me to take action. And so what I really want to do is help those those businesses. And by the way, if after the the audit they want to work with, that's fine. If they don't want to work with us, that's fine. Like we're here, like this is really what I'm I'm trying to do is trying to help these guys and help any of these business owners. Well, that's great. And Philip, uh, I know you came up from DC for this. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I hope you'll come on the podcast again sometime soon, maybe um uh, I mean, the 2018 election is coming up in a in a few months. You want to come back on uh, after that, and we could we could talk about the results, see, yeah. see, analyze some of the digital campaigns that happen, and and see who the winners and losers were. That'd be a lot of fun. Excellent. Well, thanks once again, Philip, and everybody. I'm going to take you up on your offer. I'm I'm first in line, so I'm going to take you thanks, up on man. that. Appreciate thanks. it. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.